Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. I'm Tom Hayes, and this is your 166th video cast, 156th podcast for the week ending December 22nd, 2022, getting close to Christmas for those who celebrate. Very excited about that. Uh, we'll start with media. We've got so much to cover tonight, so much exciting stuff going on. Uh, so I'm going to talk a little fast, but uh, first we'll do the media. want to thank Fitria. Uh, Angriani uh, and Andy Shalini for having me on CNBC Closing Bell Indonesia on Monday. I want to thank um, Larry Menti, legendary Larry Menti. I love going on with Larry. He did the Mark Simone show on 710 WOR this week. Uh, thanks for having me on that. We're going to cover that a bit in this uh, videocast podcast. Also want to thank Akash Shriram for having me on his article in... Reuters, and also want to thank Ellen Chang for having me in her article today, Wall Street Expects a Santa Claus Rally. Well, I would say most of Wall Street doesn't, but we'll talk about why there's still a little hope into year end. I uh, also want to thank, um, here we go, Tiashi Data, Nivedita Balu, uh, Medicine and Bansari Kamdar for having me in their article on Reuters today. And here are some holiday photos from the club. The girls met Santa and Mrs. Claus. So uh, they're getting bigger, as you can see, but they were all decked out for Christmas. And uh, that's them in front of the tree over there. Uh, and that's uh, us at a holiday bash. So, uh, so happy holidays to everyone. The quote of the week is the stock market is never obvious. It's designed to fool most of the people most of the time. Let's see if we can make some sense of it for you this week, uh, which has been a confusing week, but, uh, I think it'll clarify itself before long. So, um, first thing that shook the markets today, billionaire investor David Tepper is leaning short on the stock market because central banks are saying what they're going to do. So um, first off, you never want to bet against uh, David Tepper. Uh, that's number one. He's a legend. Uh, he's uh, uh, exceptional in special situations. Uh, he owns a football team. He's made billions of dollars from scratch. He's got all the credentials. Uh, so you got you got to take what he says seriously. Um the basic premise of what he was saying was uh, when the Fed started quantitative easing and uh, uh, easing policy uh, after the great financial crisis, he said, you know, time to go in all stocks in 2009 or 2010. Uh, and he was right. And, and as they maintain the liquidity, he continued to be bullish and he continued to be right. So he basically retired a few years ago, bought a football team. He's a lot older now than he was. Uh, in, you know, at the great financial crisis. And what I find is, um, number one, he makes a salient argu argument, you know, Fed funds rates not at zero, it's at four going to five. Um, uh, you know, quantitative easing is no longer happening, quantitative tightening is happening. Um, what I find with the best investors in the world is the older they get and the wealthier they get, most importantly, the latter, the wealthier they get, uh, the more risk averse they become and the more conservative they come. Uh, and, you know, if you look at um, uh, Stanley Druckenmiller, for instance, another absolute legend, one of the best ever to live in the business, sim similar to David Tepper. But he's been bearish, you know, basically every year since 2010, uh, every single year. 
that said, what you'll note about both Tepper and Druckenmiller, as bearish as they've been, uh, and Tepper would be more recently, Druckenmiller's been more consistently bearish for, for many years, uh, Tep Tepper's changed in the last few, is that when you look at their holdings, they're aggressively long. So um, while they're talking caution, they're not wanting to miss out and they're positioned to capture the upside. Uh, and what a lot of the people are misinterpreting, and I saw the whole interview with Tepper, uh, is he says he, he'd have to lean that way. And it was predicated on the discount rate, which I 100% agree with him on. Um, but saying that as the discount rate goes up, you can't have a high multiple. And so I said, huh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Like, why would you have a high multiple if the discount rate's going up? You put it into the uh, net present value. It just can't happen. But then I burdened myself with the facts as I like to do. And here's what I found. Uh, what you have here in black is the Fed funds rate. And what's interesting about it is it's basically leaving aside the great financial crisis it's basically the lowest it's ever been, okay? So, um, you know, you basically had a Fed funds rate post-World War II go up to about 4% in the 60s, then 5% in the late 60s, then 9% in the early 70s, then 13% in the early 70s, then you had the 73-74 crash after 13%, then 19% in the early 80s, uh, and then it just worked its way down. But if you look most recently, even during the tech bubble, where valuations and multiples were much, much higher than they're even remotely close to today, uh, you had a Fed funds rate at 6%, uh, 6 to 6.5% during 1995 through 2000. Uh, and basically that's a, the perfect model that we've been looking at for this situation where they hiked rates extremely fast, uh, all the way up to 6%. And then they paused. They did one cut, but they, it wasn't an aggressive cut like you see in the great financial crisis, which is a recession. And they extended the cycle another five years. And we're still in this camp. They're going to pause. Maybe you have to do one or two cuts the end of next year or earlier the following year in 2024, and then keep rates elevated for a, a, a sustained period of time, maybe, maybe many of years, uh, years to extend this rally. Now, the other thing is this purple line, and this is the P.E. ratio of the S&P 500. It's saying right now it's 20. I, th I think this is, uh, I don't think it's trailing. I don't think it's forward. I think it's current. It's not perfect, but the key is you get the theme from 1948 forward, and you can see, uh, despite the fact we still have a lower Fed funds rate, effective Fed funds rate, than we've had all throughout history, with the exception of the great financial crisis, uh, the multiple is, you know, at the average, if not lower than most periods. It's certainly lower than, you know, uh, the vast majority of periods after 2000, and then as you get back into the 60s, it's right in line with the long-term average. The, uh, the average, um, throughout history, I think for a hundred years is like 18 post, uh, I'm sorry, 15. And if you go closer, like, uh, you know, the sixties forward or post-World War II forward, uh, it's, it's more like 17 or 18. So, uh, that's one. Number two, as we've said, uh, many times, people are looking for earnings to come down. They're at 231. They haven't come down for many, many weeks. 
uh, despite people calling for it to come down another 20, 20%, maybe they, they'll, maybe they'll be right. Maybe they won't be. But by the time they trough, uh, you know, let's say it's in March or April or May of next year, uh, the market will already be looking to 2024. And I think 2024 is going to be up 25% from 2023 and 2022. Uh, and that, that will make the multiple, uh, stay at these low levels that you're seeing. So, uh, as a matter of fact, what's really fascinating about this chart is that in some cases, the lower the Fed funds rate got, the lower the PE multiple got, not the higher, because it usually implied, see all these cuts, that you were in a recession and the multiple contracted. Uh, recession, the multiple contracted, versus when you were hiking, it showed there was demand, there was growth. The reason you have inflation is because there's demand. That's not necessarily a bad thing. They just don't want it to be hyperinflation, and that's why they're so content on hawkish talk and talking down long-term inflation expectations, which they're succeeding in doing. But if you look at this long-term trend line, we're kind of right around where we should be um, in a normalized. The only problem is our PE multiple is relatively low historically. So, um, you know, the old saying from Texas, that dog don't hunt, because this Fed funds rate is if you're anchored to recency bias of the great financial crisis, you're right. The Fed funds rate is high. If you're re- if you're anchored to 75 years of history, the Fed funds rate is still low and you can get much higher multiples uh, with this, this low of a Fed funds rate or high of a Fed fund rate, however you want to look at it, because our multiples were dramatically higher in uh, in the late 2000s. Uh, from you know 96 to 2000 um, after the Fed paused with a much higher Fed funds rate of six and a half. So um, again, this is this is just normal cognitive behavior of being anchored to recency bias. But when those rates were were low, we were in a recession, and so were earnings, and therefore the multiples were low as well. Same thing in the 70s. So you actually don't want that. You don't want Fed funds to go down so low. You just want them to pause and sustain because it means demand is still there, growth is still there. And what I've been saying and the framework that we've been talking about all year is the millennials are the largest part of the population. And there's been no instance in 100 years across countries where you have the bulk of the population at 30 to 40. Once they turn 40, that's when the economy rolls over. But 30 to 40, where they're max spending, housing formation, family formation, uh, job growth, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, where the country has had a downturn and the stock market's done poorly. It's in those instances where you get some of the biggest runs in history. And we had a similar situation from 82 to 90. We had a similar situation from 50 to 68. um, uh, And a similar situation um, during the 20s. So um, I'm glad that Tepper came out saying what he said because you want to expose yourself to all alternative points of view. But then when you stress test the theory, um, it, it, it the data shows the opposite of what the, the, the thesis was predicated upon, even though it's counterintuitive, the facts don't lie. So that's where we are, uh, you know, uh, and, and you just have to be flexible, but, but those are the facts. The other thing that we've been talking about regularly uh, on, on our media appearances and everything else is how emerging markets are ready for a multi-year rally. And by emerging markets, I mean uh, China in particular, because that's close to 40% of the weight 
of emerging markets. And what I noticed is that I also started getting very interested and I posted a chart on the relative valuation of small caps to large caps. So while large cap valuations are still, you know, I, I was asking myself, why am I not excited to be wholesale long? You know, I hear all the bearish arguments because that's all there are right now. Like everyone's bearish. And I say, you know, if I'm so bullish, why am I not just wholesale in the S&P 500? Why, why am I not intuitively doing that? When I look at my top three positions, it's Alibaba Emerging Markets. Uh, you, you've got biotech, which has a low correlation to the S&P 500 and can do quite well even when the market's doing weak. Uh, and I've got Cooper Standard, which is unrelated, you know, which is not correlated. It's a special situation that uh, the first catalyst is the refinancing, which is now assured. It just needs to get completed. We'll get into that. Um, uh, and those three are, are not correlated. Uh, and, and Cooper Standard is a small cap, by the way. So I started to think about like why, what led me to those? Cause I just look for the most value for the least money with the highest upside potential. Uh, and what, what is basically it's coming to is you can see here, uh, in the red and green lines, this is the emerging market. So you could think of it even as China, but, or the Hang Seng, but emerging markets is the red and green. Um, the black line is small cap U.S. stocks, and the purple is tech, the tech ETF. And as you can see, in the late 90s, tech was dramatically outperforming both emerging markets slash China and U.S. small caps, um, <clears throat> despite the Fed funds rate being at 6.5%, by the way, which everyone continues to conveniently forget. Um, when we're at 425 to 450. So you got to put a little perspective on where we actually are uh, and not be anchored to the recency bias, which is a, uh, a normal behavioral flaw. Um, but what you saw when tech rolled over, as we saw this year, particularly the in a quote unquote innovation stocks, which were the quote unquote dot coms and the Amazons of 2000, uh, the, uh, the Shopify's and the uh, wayfarers of today are, and the Pelotons of today were kind of the Amazons and the Qualcomms and all that of 2000. When that purple line rolled over, what you saw for the next, uh, long period of time, but certainly the immediate next five years was emerging markets rallied 480% and small caps dramatically outperformed the market, even though they underperformed emerging markets. So what you wanted to be was underweight, super large cap tech. They went up, but they went up a lot less. And you wanted to be overweight emerging markets in China. And you wanted to be overweight U.S. small caps because those were the best performers. And I think we're setting up for the exact same situation. And it's actually already started where you're seeing, you know, small caps have basically been grinding sideways as have emerging markets Tech has been straight up since 2009, and that's why people say, like, well, we've been going up for so long. But that's only one portion of the market. The big upside has been uh, in tech. And uh, emerging markets, you can buy at 2007 prices, despite the fact GDP and all the earnings power and everything else. And that's why their multiples are at historic lows. Uh, same thing with U.S. small cap. And they tend to do well at the same times after tech has rolled over uh, and a a after the dollar has rolled over. And emerging markets get bid and small caps get bid. So 
Um, and that's how we're positioned, you know, um, uh, with the exception of biotech, um, which is not not really correlated to any of this. It, it's based on drugs and deals. And um, and we think they're going to do quite well. And they've done quite well in recent tightening cycles, 2016, 18 uh, and, and several others in the past. So. Um, uh, so anyway, this kind of squared the circle and, and, it, and it started with uh, just listening to Tepper this morning. And it was really, really helpful. The other thing that had the market down today was that Micron's earnings were bad last night. And what people did was they extrapolated this to every semiconductor and every tech stock in the market. Uh, but if you pay attention to markets enough, you'll come to the conclusion that Micron always disappoints. Like they're, they're consistent disappointers. That's what they do for a living every single time. And every single quarter, the market tries to extrapolate it to all the other high quality semiconductor companies like Taiwan Semi. Uh, and Qualcomm, and they're always wrong every single time. And I think this time will be no different. So we'll, time will tell, but um, it just shows the shakiness, obviously, like holiday volume, uh, everyone's position, highest cash levels, et cetera, et cetera, all the things that you see at reversals, and that's that's where we are. So don't give up on Santa. Uh, we're going to take the Grinch behind the barn and shoot him before the year is up, but uh, uh, one step at a time, and we'll tell you how we get there. The dollar continues to trend down. That's great for emerging markets, Baba. It's great uh, if that's the case. Uh, small caps will outperform tech. And if you look at the S&P 500 right now, what are still the top weights is the big, big, biggest tech. Um, and they'll go up. They'll just underperform, as you can see here. So um, now here's another capitulation. The uh, CBOE options equity put call ratio hit two today. We've never seen that. So you got getting a huge flush out of fear. The CPC, the CBOE options total put call ratio, uh, got up to 150. Uh, that's where what you see near bottoms or at bottoms, not at or near tops. Uh, and then um, the S&P, for all the fear and panic and craziness in the market, you know, look, you went from 350 to 407. You had like a 16% rally in about six weeks into December. We've given back a little bit. But, you know, it, it basically, for all of you people with CMTs and all that stuff, uh, here, you know, you basically got your reverse uh, shoulder, head, shoulder. And, and if you do the math, it should be a measured move, another 350 to 400. So that should get you up to 450, 4,500 on the S&P. I'm not saying that's happening tomorrow. And I'm not saying this pattern's even valid. But what I am saying is for all the negativity in the market, uh, nothing's really happened here other than light volume. And by the way, tax loss selling in a major way. If there was ever a year where there was going to be a lot of tax loss selling uh, to, to create the deferred tax, uh, the uh, tax asset to, uh, to offset gains, it would be this year. And that's exactly what's taken place. So when that finishes up, uh, what we find the Santa Claus rally officially starts every year. There's math behind it. We'll go into it uh, on the Friday uh, tomorrow. Tomorrow's the day it starts. Last five trading days, first two trading days of January. And, um, and I think we can, we can knock out the Grinch before, before the year is up. Let's take a look at some indicators just so you can see. Uh, here's the VIX still trending down. People can't figure out because that's what it does after heart attacks. It trends down with, with a few fits and starts. It trends down. That's exactly what's happening right now. Then you've got, um, We'll go through some of these. The skew, 
Again, the smart money is not buying catastrophe insurance. They buy it near the top, near the top. One and two, the house already burned down. There's no reason to buy cat insurance here for smart money, and they're not. So when they start buying a ton of it and we get an askew at 170, 160 after a huge run in equities, then I'll get cautious like I did, by the way, last year. If you remember, you can go back to the, the uh, uh, podcast. Everyone was bulled up like hell, and I said, listen, first quarter of next year, we're going to get a, a 8 to 12% correction in the S&P 500. I'm telling you it's coming, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and it was the most wrong I've ever been about being right in my life. <laughs> we did get the 8 to 12% correction, and then we got another 8 to 12% correction on top of that, uh, you know, which, uh, which was way more than, than we expected. But when all is said and done, it created a setup. I've never been more excited going into a new year the way we're positioned uh, and, and some of the things that we were able to buy and buy more of throughout the year that are going to just set off on fire as we get this type of action going in emerging markets moving forward uh, and China and small caps and Cooper Standard and all the good news that we've seen, which we're going to go through some of that. So um, uh, let's see. Um, So we got some indicators here. McClellan we covered in recent weeks. Uh, and, you know, and some of these people keep talking about breath. Breath is so bad. But uh, we covered breath, but that's very normal. You have these heart attacks. You have a check back, a, a fake out, and then you start to climb up. Heart attack like 2011, check back, fake out, and then you start to work up. And you have these little consolidations until you get momentum. You just had a heart attack. You're not going to go out and run a marathon. You're going to walk a mile, then you're going to rest. So we just walked a mile. Now we're resting. Now we're going to try to do another three miles at a, at a jog pace. And then guess what? We're going to rest again, just like we did in 2015. Look, heart attack, check back, fake out, consolidation. Then you try to do the three miles, you check back. You try to do the three miles, you check back. And then you get the multi-year run. And I think that's really what we're set up to. I mean, I think the way we're set up right now for next year, I could see next year being the best best year in the history of my career. Um, I, I've, I've been to a lot of movies before, and um, I know what it feels and look like, looks like when there's a regime change, and I love how we're positioned. Certainly the top three and everything else on top of it, which I don't go into, but my clients know, uh, is, is going to be very, very exciting. So uh, NASDAQ McClellan Oscillator here. Again, oversold. You have the heart attack, then you get the check back when everyone's, oh, we're going to new lows. We could go to new lows. Look, you never want to discount a guy like Tepper. I mean, the guy's been a hero to me for my career. Uh, but um, just telling you, I see it over and over again. These guys, they make a couple billion dollars, two, three, four. In the case of Tepper, 10. They go buy sports teams. They go buy houses. They go buy boats. They're not engaged. They, they Once they become family offices, they're disengaged. They're rich. Uh, they're still paying attention, but it's not that same level of intensity grinding through every single detail every single day where they can feel and see sentiment. If I'm out of the office for three days, which I never am, like my feel for the markets, and I'm not like I need feel because I buy high-quality businesses that I want to hold over time. It's just not the same. When you're in the game and you're competing and you're in the arena, you need to be there all the time paying attention. Number one, I love it. Number two, because it's what it takes to excel. And um, and that's that's where we are. So, um, okay, bullish percent SPX, same thing. 
heart attack, check back, fake out, consolidation. Oh, we're going to new lows. Heart attack, setback, fake out, and then you're off to the races. And then you do a check back. So, look, these things repeat over and over. Does it mean it guarantees that we're out of the woods? No, nothing is ever a guarantee. Amateurs deal in absolutes. Professionals deal in probabilities. And I'm saying on a selective basis, I'm not wholesale long the S&P, but based on how we're positioned, I, you know, even if the S&P, like big tech, underperforms, the positioning that we're set up for are going to be the ones that outperform, uh, and, um, and, and we're excited about it. Uh, by PMO by SPX, same thing back down here, ready to rocket. This is not where, this is, this is not where you want to be a seller. It's where you want to be a buyer. Same thing, DJI, same thing with PMO by all, one of my favorites down, back down to zero. Uh, National Association of Active Investment Managers, they got pushed out. By the way, we've got an AMA question on that. I'll just do it now. He said, uh, John Jay says, uh, exposure, equity exposure is 39.35. You can see it came down. They got scared out, by the way, because everyone's calling for new lows, the triple break putt. Uh, are these portfolio managers required slash mandated to increase their exposure level to a much higher percent before 1231? I'm guessing 80% or more. The answer is no, but opinion follows trend. The last thing they want to do is see price jump two or 3% and they're not in and they miss it. So they'll have to lever up to catch it. So we'll see what happens before the end of the year. The key thing is, you know, the positions we love the most, no one's going to put on their books before the end of the year if they don't own it. They're not going to be buying emerging markets before January 1st because they they haven't performed this year. They're not going to buy Alibaba, although KWeb has now outperformed the NASDAQ and the S&P 500 year to date. Isn't that interesting? That's the Chinese internet, which is uh, Alibaba and Tencent are the top two weightings now outperforming the NASDAQ and the S&P. So it, it, amazing what a few difference a few weeks work makes. Um, uh, so that's that. But after the first, they can get into the Cooper standards. They can get into the, uh, biotechs. They can get into the Alibaba, start to show them on the books because they're, they're going to be the next batch. Um, uh, McClellan summation index, same thing. Heart attack, check back, heart attack, check back. Like th- these things, you, you just have to observe. You don't, you know, like Buffett says, you don't need a super high IQ. You just have to observe the obvious. And um, nothing is guaranteed, but some things, you know, you can draw with a crayon. You don't need a scalpel. And uh, they, they just tend to repeat themselves over and over. After every heart attack, you always get a check back. You don't usually get a heart attack after the heart attack. Uh, it's possible. You know, you have 2008, which are once in a 100-year events. Could you have two once in a 100-year events within 15 years? Yes. Uh, would you bet the ranch on it? I wouldn't. So, uh, but it seems like a lot of people are doing that right now. Um uh, S&P stocks, uh, we covered this last week. Real estate was the worst performing with emerging markets. The last shall be first. If you look through 30 years of assets, the ones that are down for one or two years tend to be the top the next year. Uh, right now, the ones that are down is emer- emerging markets, which is China. Last two years, they're going to be at the top next year. That I can assure you. Uh, and real estate, if, it, if it's not at the top, it'll be at the middle and it'll probably be at the top the year after. The pessimism couldn't be greater. And you just see it over and over and over. You want to be a buyer down here. People say, how can you say that with rates going up? Look at look at the biggest boom in real estate. Rates shot up from 2002 to 2007. You had the biggest price appreciation. So don't discount it. Yeah, there might be some problems in some commercial and some office space uh, and, and everything else. But 
you know, everyone says malls were going to go go be dead, and now everyone can't get to the mall fast enough this year to the high quality A malls like the Simon Property Groups because they got tired of sitting in their house for two years. They want to get out and they want to do stuff. So um, that's that. More and more of this. Um, same same type of stuff. Here we go. Nasdaq, Cohen, high, low. It just rechecks, grinds around, scares the hell out of everyone. And then it finally re repairs itself and you're off to the racing. Check back, check back. We're going to get that same thing in 2015, 2016. Check back, check back, etc. But everyone, what do they do? They look to the great financial crisis because they think they're going to get two once in a hundred year events in 15 years, which they may be right. Uh, but I would say the conditions don't exist. That was a credit-based financial crisis. We don't have anything like that. Balance sheets, underwriting, everything was much stronger. Debt to equity. Uh, and by the way, the other thing that uh, Tepper didn't acknowledge is, yes, they're draining liquidity, but they pumped an unprecedented $9.5 trillion in two years, 38% of GDP in 24 months. It's never happened in history. If they drain $4 billion, $4 trillion of liquidity, you still have $5 trillion over two years, which has never happened before. So uh, they've got to drain this, and that doesn't necessarily mean all risk assets go to hell. Um, same thing here. So I just wanted to go through this. I mean, here's our, my favorite NASDAQ 1% EMA advanced decline ratio. Again, I mean, this thing is almost a carbon copy to 2011. Boom, boom, boom. Here's the check back. Here's the check back. And then rip your face off when no one expects it. Market is designed to fool most of the people most of the time, or as I like to say, cause the most amount of pain to the most amount of people at any one point in time. Uh, is, is my interpretation. Uh, put call we covered. So I uh, hope that gives you some clarity. Now let's get to some of the headlines real quick because we got a decent amount of stuff to cover here. China hints at pro-business policy, smaller fiscal boost. Uh, increasing domestic demand is key for 2023. They're focused on consumption and retail sales. Now that, uh, uh, okay, China ADRs climb the Great Wall of Worry as PCAOB resets the eight Holding Foreign Company Accountable Act, which means that they're not going to be delisted de uh, anytime soon. So the game is back on, which means what? U.S. institutions can start to come back into the fold. They're not going to do it before the end of the year and show the Chinese names on their books. They're going to do it after the new year. And they're particularly going to do it, opinion follows trend, when price goes up another 20%. And then they're all scrambling in because China uh, tech is outperforming U.S. tech by, you know, 30, 40, 50%. Uh, and, and they're, you know, can't figure out what hit them. So China to maintain ample liquidity in 2023, <clears throat> implement proactive fisc fiscal policy, as we always like to say, forceful stimulus, okay, which they've quoted repeatedly in the past, how China's economic recovery could help the world avoid a recession. This is why I'm generally bullish. You've had the second largest economy in the world closed for two years, and they've just set their GDP target last week for next year at 5% and they're backing it up with we're doing aggressive monetary policy and per, number one and some fiscal stimulus number two. Uh, people are underestimating the impact of what that means to S&P earnings, what that means to Europe, what that means to US. We've been carrying the water for two years while these guys are locked up in their apartments like animals and they're finally let out, and these people want to get back to their normal lives and do the great things that China has done for the last two decades, which is grow and innovate and 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 uh, generate huge amounts of profits if you're in the right business. 
So now the government wants to do them also, and they're going to help them do that. And they've got to desperately help uh, domestic consumption, which the transmission mechanism for domestic consumption in China is Alibaba, period, over and out. Uh, they want to accelerate digitization. The transmission mechanism to accelerate digitization, i.e. Uh, the cloud, is AliCloud, which has 38%. Oh, and by the way, they want to push the hell out of the digital yuan so they can track everything. And what is the largest mechanism to do that? Ant Financial, which the owners of Alibaba own a third. I mean, I've never... I'm excited. Let's just put it that way. So, uh, all right. So that's that. Uh, Indonesia's policy, that, I don't know how I got that article. Next, China says it will step up support for economy in 2023 amid COVID plans. Okay. Uh, Chinese authorities pledge support for internet enabled services and sharing economy. So this is what they're focused on. Last year they were beating them up. This year they're embracing them because they need to. Now, speaking of opinion follows trend, my hat is off to Rejma Kapadia, who since, uh, Alibaba has bounced 50, 60%, K-Web's up the same amount off the lows. She has shifted from very negative articles on China to very positive articles on China. So she's shown a level of flexibility and objectivity, and I give her a lot of credit for that. Uh, and she's writing great articles on China and how the China's economic recovery can help the world avoid recession. So she now sees what we've been talking about, that the reopening is real, they're going through with this. She is saying like, hey, you're not going to die. It's Omicron. Go back to work, which is mind boggling. They're telling people with Omicron to go to go back to work. I think they just want to get it over with and get herd immunity overnight. Uh, China shows more pragmatism, less ideology on economy, easing COVID-19 protocols and promoting property reflect a new growth push under President Xi Jinping. Amazing how that came just a couple of weeks after the China National Congress. It usually comes before this time they did it bass backwards, but hey, no big deal. Uh, Chinese property bonds are suddenly a huge winner. What overnight? Chinese stock delisting threat eases as U.S. gets access to audit data. Shares jumped after the PCAOB's announcement on Thursday. We covered that last week. Uh, all the things we've been waiting for are now in play. You'll see institutions start to put it on their books after the first of the year. Uh, and even more so as they jump 20 and 30%, then you'll get the fear of missing out and the relative outperformance, et cetera, et cetera. Exact same thing that happened with energy. When, you know, no one wanted it in 2020, then 2021, everyone started putting it on their books after it was up 40, 50, 60%. And then 2022, when everyone was clamoring for it, we were laying it off in the first and second quarter of the year. A hair too early, but you know what? We didn't lose sleep over that. You take the meat out of the middle and leave the, leave the scraps for everyone else. Um, China's leaders plot pivot back towards boosting economy. Uh, senior officials are setting a robust GDP growth target of more than 5% for next year as they loosen COVID rules and de-emphasize ideology. Last year, they emphasized ideology and de-emphasized GDP. Uh, they said, we're not going to hit our targets, uh, last year meaning this year. So next year, the game has changed. They're back to the old playbook. By the way, Michael Burry was right about one thing. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. So if you love the performance of Alibaba, uh, you know, uh, before last year when it went from, you know, 100 to 300 in a couple of years, um, you're going to love it under the new boss, which is the exact same as the old boss who just went back to doing the old things that made him successful. So uh, China's economy struggled in COVID zero's final months. So these are the final hiccups, you know, before they flip the switch. So, you know, we'll see a little slowness in Q4 numbers, but it really doesn't matter at this point. 
Macau signs, it's backward looking, rearview mirror. Macau signs packed with six casino licenses, hot on the heels of easing COVID quarantine rules. Uh, that's a big deal. PCOB announcement, complete free access to inspect and investigate Chinese firms. So, you know, delisting's now off the table. You could probably switch back your Baba shares if you want to. We're not doing that yet. There's no real reason to. But, um, oh, and the other thing is, um, which we'll cover here in just a second. Uh, here it is. Uh, CSRC and Hong Kong Securities, uh, they did a dual announcement. The net effect of this announcement, which I have translated into English, is that uh, Alibaba is going to get that second primary listing in Hong Kong, which is going to bring Stock Connect dollars uh, in as Alibaba buyers, meaning uh, people who lived on mainland China, uh, who live who live on mainland China, have not been able to buy Alibaba stock for 20 years. Now, for the first time, they're going to be able to buy Alibaba stock. So let's say you're in the U.S. and you get six Amazon packages a week to your door, uh, Amazon Prime, and you have a business and you use their cloud service and you watch uh, the NFL on Tuesday nights on Amazon Prime, uh, etc. But you haven't been able to buy their stock and participate in the growth. And all of a sudden you can. So if Tencent is any tell because Tencent is on the Stock Connect. They have about $30 billion worth of mainland buyers. I think you're going to see more than that in terms of Alibaba. Taobao is in the mind share of the Chinese uh, population. I think that you're going to see uh, more than $30 billion of new buying power come in in the first quarter. And institutions that are smart will be front running that new buying power uh, once they can put it on their books in the coming months. So uh, weeks, <laughs> weeks actually, uh, after the turn of the year. So uh, all of this is is what we've been saying was going to happen. It's finally happening, and we're going to benefit from next year. So we planted the seeds in 2022. We're going to reap the harvest in 2023 and 2024. Chinese semiconductors IPO surge as chip arms race heats up. By the way, who's a huge player in AI chips? Alibaba. Who The government needs them desperately now. They're the biggest player because they have it for years of doing the cloud. Uh, and now that there are all the chip chip wars going back and forth, uh, the government needs Alibaba more than ever, and that's why they're now supporting them, because the more profitable Alibaba is, the more they can invest in chips, which the government desperately needs to stay competitive on a global basis. Uh, China confirms change to COVID death definition as doubts on data grow, so they're no longer calling deaths deaths, apparently, uh, or at least not recording them. They're certainly not recording cases, so cases have completely d disappeared, despite the fact that the hospitals are overflowing. Not a laughing matter at all, but part of the process, we went through it in the West, and uh, they're fortunate in that they're getting a weaker variant because uh, they've been locked up for two years. So uh, in some sense, you know, maybe uh, they got that, that aspect uh, lucky on that aspect. So China calls on local manufacturers to protect nation's role as world's manufact as as world's factory as Apple diversifies its supply chain. They realize we effed up. China's going to Vietnam. They're going to India. They're going to Arizona. Uh, we're going to lose everything if we don't turn around. And uh, that's exactly why you see them telling uh, people with COVID to go back to work and uh, zero COVID is basically over. China's state council calls for implementation of property market rescue measures to boost the economic growth. Like everything's happening now. And now that they're opening, it's actually going to matter. When you've got people locked up in their apartments like animals for two years and you're stimulating and you're announcing all these plans, it doesn't mean anything because you have no activity. Now the activity is coming back and, it, you know, the first month will not be good. People will stay home, one, because they're scared, two, because they're sick. When they get well, they have the immunity. They'll be out with a vengeance just like we saw 
in the U.S. So China Li urges Hong Kong leader to boost financial hub status. They realize they're losing everything. They're losing the chips. They're losing this. And they got to scramble to get it back and keep it. And the way to do that is to grow and, and, uh, and get their stock prices up so they get foreign capital investment. Opinion follows trend off to the races. They know all this. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. He's, he's done this playbook before. He just got sidetracked uh, in a dark alley for a year and, uh, uh, you know, almost wound up, uh, getting overthrown. It, it's basically what it came down to. And then he pivoted. So, uh, Chinese cities, factories tell people with COVID to go back to work. So I wasn't exaggerating on that. That's exactly what they're saying. You have COVID great, go back to work. Um, investments are set to flow back into China as tech giants avoid USD listing. Uh, government pledges policy support says investment manager. So that's that. We posted that in the article actually. Um, Chinese air travel surges after easing COVID restrictions. So look, everything we said was coming all came at once. And actually the timing is perfect because if it had come two months earlier, I don't know if institutions would have raced into them with two months to go. If they, if they would really want to put it back on their books wholesale and particularly before the PCAOB announcement, you know, kind of blessing the ADRs and saying that the audits were fine the, the entire time, which we all knew because it was PWC. Not to say that PWC hasn't had any mistakes in the past. They have, but you know, here we are. Uh, just, you know, it takes a little longer, but the thesis is correct and, and we get paid on it, uh, next year, which is, which is going to be exciting. So, uh, China shows more pragmatism and less ideology on the economy. Okay, we went through that. So you get the point. China pulling out all stops to revive economy. Here's what investors can expect from my new buddy, Rejma Kapadia, who's going to be the, the new axe on China now. She's got the, got the new playbook out, and uh, we're excited to have her on board. Uh, Jack Ma's ant group uh, could be among top 10 Asian IPOs in 2023. This is mind-boggling news that this is in print in the South China Morning Post. Usually if you print like something like this last year, you pissed off the government and that pushed it off another five years. But who owns this? Alibaba owns this. So they would not let that print and piss off the government if this wasn't going to happen. And by the way, we own a third of that, which is pretty exciting as owners of Alibaba. Uh, Fed balance sheet uh, drawdown could... uh, Okay, so now we're moving on to U.S. Fed's balance sheet drawdown could sunset next year. So maybe they go from... 9 trillion to 7 trillion but um what they're basically saying may uh, the uh, quantitative tightening may end earlier than once thought even as yet US central banks chart a more aggressive path of interest rate hikes fed watchers reckon it will most likely have to stop in some form its current shedding of treasury bonds and mortgage backed securities next year due to rising shortfalls in financial sector liquidity. If you remember, we pointed out that Yellen was talking about basically doing quantitative easing again, but not calling it that, buying buying bonds in the open market. Uh, that may be already happening. Such shortfalls could threaten the central bank's control over its overnight interest rate target, which is why it may have to react. When it comes to officials' comments on the balance sheet outlook, it seems like they're oddly silent about this whole thing at the moment, says Derek Tang with uh, L.H. Meyer. Uh, Fed will start seeing signs of liquidity issues in the spring of 2023 and take action by June to start throttling drawdown of its holdings, which means maybe they only reduce the balance sheet by a trillion, which again is monster, historic, unbelievable liquidity, even if they went down four trillion and, and they're probably only going to get down one trillion. Stock market, Wall Street stock market forecast for 2022 were off by the widest margin since 20, 2008. 
Will next year be any different? No, they'll be wrong again. Last year, they all expected market up 20%. This year, they all expect it down. Uh, so I think we're going to see a good year because no one is looking for it. And people are saying, how can that happen? With unemployment's going to tick up. Earnings are going to tick down. How can the market uh, go up? Because the market's a discounting mechanism. It discounted that hell this year that's coming next year. Uh, and then by the time that hell comes, we'll be looking at 2024 earnings, which will be through the roof with China at four or five, six percent GDP. We're going to be off to the races. And that's two years of pent up demand. So they might even exceed their targets. Uh, okay. Article of the week. Three magic words, stock market and sentiment results. On Tuesday, I joined legendary anchor Larry Menti, over 80 regional Emmys in his career on the Mark Simone show. This show's number one uh, for its daily time slot from 10 a.m. to 2, 12 p.m. It's heard by over 22 million radio and TV listeners a month. In this segment with Larry, I covered the three magic words that could change everything on a dime. Hint, they are not Volker's words. Keep at it. They are Volker's words. I'll give you the Cliff's notes, but you should listen to the full interview to get context. Uh, they are Volker's words. May shift tactics which he said on october 5th uh 1982 when inflation was still just under seven percent uh and within four months the stock market correct uh, uh recovered 100 percent of its 27 percent peak to trough s p correction which is similar to what we had this year the minute you see that change and all you need to see Tomorrow, we've got a core PCE is going to be a very important number. Then we've got jobs in January. The layoffs are going to come after Christmas. So uh, we'll start to see them in the February report. We'll see data before they have the next Fed meeting. So maybe it's a one final 25 and done. Maybe it's zero and done. We'll find out. Uh, and we'll probably find out quicker than anyone expects. So uh, then I joined uh, CNBC. We'll go through some of the highlights here. You know, markets sold off when they took the terminal rate from 4.6 to 5.1. No one liked that. I don't think they'll get to 5.1, and uh, we've covered all the reasons why. Uh, market didn't buy it either because uh, right after that, the two-year yield closed the week at 4.18%, which was below the Fed Fund's effective rate of 4.25 to 4.5. And the 10-year yield closed after that meeting at 3.48, well below uh, 4.25 to, to 5. So market's pricing in cuts because of slowdown towards the end of next year. I think we could get one cut, and then I think we're going to pause for many, many years and stay elevated, uh, which would be a perfect scenario for that 95 to 99 setup um, kind of midway through a bull market. So uh, Fed's prepared. Okay. Now, our headline CPI was 0.1% month on month last week. If that pace persists, we're going to be below 3% headline inflation by May. I posted that on Twitter with the data. Uh, we're currently at 7.1. That means Fed's uh, preferred metric of core PCE, which we see tomorrow, which they're projecting 5%, uh, 3.5% for next year. Yeah, there's some formatting issue i got to fix. That should say 3.5% uh, of next year will be well below 3% if headline uh, gets down to uh, 3% by May. So uh, maximum of one more hike. We covered that. We covered earnings bottom before the stock market. We covered the liquidity. Uh, uh, since 1954, the average 12-month return for the S&P after the Fed pauses is 14%. So 
you know, you could see a situation where you get a rally in a um, Santa Claus rally followed by January effect into the Fed meeting. Um, and then the Fed pauses and you get another, you know, on average 14 percent. Uh, that's certainly plausible. That's happened out of uh, uh, the last 13 times since 1954. The average return after they hit the pause button, which could be as early as February, would be uh, 14%, which which would tack on to whatever we see in uh, uh, early January. The other thing about December, the first half of December is historically weak. The strength picks up uh, the second half of the month. And particularly all skewed towards the Santa Claus era, which is starts tomorrow and goes uh, all through next week and into the first two trading sessions of January, which is historically the strongest part of December. So don't give up on Santa. Maybe Santa can push the Grinch out of the sleigh and uh, and be done with him. So, um, okay, we covered the emerging markets, you know, uh, historically you could buy it now at 2007 prices. They trade opposite the U.S. dollar. And here are the instances, 480% from 2002 to 2007, uh, 189% from 2009 to 2011, uh, 96% from 2016 to 2018, 97% from 2020 to 2021. This is all after the dollar has fallen. The dollar is now 10%, down 10% in the last two months. So another thing we called earlier, we were bid early on. Now it's all playing out as anticipated and we get paid on it big time in 2023 um, for those who are with me now. So uh, underestimating China's abrupt reopening. Uh, yeah, I think most analysts are underestimating the impact of that 5% China GDP on S&P earnings for next year. I think that's where they're off. And I think that's why earnings are actually kind of holding up here. Um the PCAOB is a, a catalyst. No inflation worries. They've been buying all the oil under the sun at $60 from the Russians. So they can stimulate till the cows come home with no inflation worries. That's a big deal. While the, while the West is tightening and, uh, and, and fighting inflation, China is easing like nobody's tomorrow and no worries of inflation in the near term. Now, here's the quote of the week. Uh, before we give it, begin the session, a friendly reminder from yours truly. Uh, this is something I came up with. Uh, if you can tell I'm excited, I walk up at like three in the morning with this idea. But anyway, so bears and pessimists always sound sophisticated and smarter than the rest. But bulls or optimists wind up with all of the money over time. I'll repeat that again. Bears always sound sophisticated and smarter than the rest. But bulls wind up with all the money over time. It's the difference between having gambler's odds and having casino odds. Over time, the casino takes all as the odds are stacked in their favor. Over time, bulls make the money as the market goes up 70% of the time. The key is to sit tight and possibly add to high-quality businesses, not speculative pipe dreams, that are temporarily marked down when the wind blows from time to time. So, uh, and then finally, I topped it off with I've never met a, a, a wealthy perma pessimist. Uh, and, and that's certainly the case. So uh, or certainly they didn't become wealthy. What They weren't pessimistic when they became wealthy. They may have became pessimistic after they got their wealth. But um, uh, it just doesn't doesn't exist. So uh, read this, read this over and over. If you understand the depth of this, because, you know, the job of um, broadcasters is to get ratings. And 
you know, bears sound sophisticated. They sound like they're being cautious and this and that, but they never get penalized for dramatically underperforming for 10 years at a clip. Uh, they only get rewarded when once out of every 10 years, they make a lot of money all at once. And if you understand the business and you understand the game, you know what's going on behind the curtains. And the people who come on that are historically bullish and optimistic, people are like, oh, they're so, you know, they're so naive. You've got Ukraine and you've got this and you've got that and you've got that. And it's always this and that. You know, name the year. There's always 10 things that everyone's worried about. That's why stock climb the wall of worry and they go up 70% of the time. Uh, and what you're going to find as you've been around long enough, the wealthiest people are the ones that don't sound sophisticated on TV because they know the game. And, you know, Buffett is the perfect example of that. Buffett is never saying, well, I'm looking at credit spreads in the European Union relative to Southeast Asia, and I'm looking at the yen now strengthening since the yield curve control is backed up to 50 basis points in Japan. I, I just really can't figure out if I should buy any more Taiwan Semiconductor because I heard that Lagarde is the grizzly bear and Jay Powell is the panda bear and I just can't make a decision if I should buy more Coca-Cola or more American Express or more you name it, okay? And the answer is you never hear that from him. What you hear from Buffett is never bet against America. And when the market goes down, he gets excited. When it, when it rains gold, you put out a bucket, not a thimble. And that's the difference between people who do exceptionally well in the business. By the way, Tepper is in that group. Icon is in that group. All these guys who are super wealthy, super successful, my heroes, uh, they get more pessimistic once they're kind of like disengaged and they've already made it. It's like, it's like an unnatural, you know, pick up the ladder behind you. And the only one who hasn't done that has been basically Buffett and Munger. And that's why they're the best of the best of all time. Uh, and always will be, by the way. So while consensus continues to call for a new leg lower due to falling earnings and a recession in the first half of the year, we continue to take the other side. Very lonely, but you'll find that it was worth the trip in 2023. Here's Barron's cover from this weekend. Stocks could return 10% next year. So they're much more bullish than most. And Barron's is an unbelievable publication, which is why you find every day when I po post uh, what I'm reading today, um, you'll see like the first five to 10 articles are always Barron's. Because uh, they know what they're doing. Here's a long-term look at sentiment from Fundstrat. Um, and it's just basically showing that sentiment's washed out. Could, does it mean the market's absolutely bottom? No. The key shouldn't be this 45% number. The key will should be when it peaks. You know, it's it's closer to a peak than a trough. Obviously, here's, you know, towards the end of the rallies. Here was really in the middle. Uh, towards the end, after you've had this downtrend off these peaks. So we're getting... At a peak, it mean it doesn't mean it couldn't go lower, but um, it just you know gives you some visual of sentiment. Now, if you look at history, the third year of the four-year presidential cycle, which is 2023, uh, especially the first two quarters, is the strongest year for stock market performance going back a hundred years. It follows the worst year of the presidential cycle, which is the second year, i.e., 2022 or present day 2022. So here's what you see: we've been following the script to the T. 2021 was a pretty good year, a little choppy, but up. Uh, 2022, uh, you know, uh, dog, 
dog doo-doo year, okay? And that's normal of the second year of every presidential cycle. Then the third year is the absolute best year of every four years on average by double the rich, more than double the returns across the board. Uh, and then the second best year is, uh, the year after that, but it's not as good as next year. Uh, the fourth year, um, is, is up more than the first and second year, but up less than the third year. And the first two quarters, thanks to, and that's from Bloomberg and BOA, the first two quarters, um, are the uh, are the best two of next year's, and that's from Ryan Dietrich. So, first two years of the presidential cycle has followed the script, as we've covered in many times in recent weeks. Even if consensus is right that earnings will come down a lot more, we believe they are wrong about how the market will respond. As I've covered in the both media hits above, stock market bottom six to twelve months before earnings bottom. So, even if the pessimists are right historically, you can get paid to buy equities now or on October 13th when we are, we're publicly pounding the table at 3590 S&P lows on Benzingo. You can see that clip. Whoop-de-doo. We've covered this chart like six times in the last four weeks. So I hope you got it in October when we started pounding the table. As we all know, inflation has already peaked. The question is how quickly will it fall? But in reality, it may not matter because historically, once the peak is in, the market has bottomed. Peak in inflation, bottom in the market. Peak in inflation, this is inverted. Peak in inflation, bottom in the market. Peak in inflation, bottom in the market. Peak in inflation, bottom in the market. This is via Larry Williams, who's been spot on the money this year, via CNBC Mad Money. Uh, recession odds are peaking, just as they did in April 2020 and March of 2009. In both of those cases, the bottom of the stock market was in the rear view mirror. Uh, Santa Claus rally period officially begins tomorrow and runs into the first two trading sessions of January. Here's some data from Ryan Dietrich. Um, you can go through this. Basically, if it's positive, then it bodes well for next year. If it's negative, it could bode negative. But uh, we think it's going to be positive. Here's some insider data from Sentiment Trader. Uh, Jay Capel basically saying that uh, you've had massive insider selling in NASDAQ. It's at the level where you start to see uh, the price action start to recover because they're washed out. And one year later, uh, you're up on average uh, 23% in tech. 25.99 is the median with 100% win rate. 100% win rate is pretty damn good. Does that mean that it's guaranteed to be 7 out of 7? No, but 6 out of six out of 6 is pretty damn good and worth noting. Key positions update. As we've covered in the media hits above, our focus in the next few years is emerging markets expressed largely with Alibaba and China positions. This is a play on the dollar weakening as the Fed nears the end of its tightening cycle and as China's reopening and stimulus moving forward. Alibaba is best positioned to benefit from the digitization of China with AliCloud, as well as CCP's newfound push to domestic consumption, e-commerce, and digital yuan and financial. PCAOB has taken delisting off the table. Biotech is our second large theme predicated on M&A deal flows. Big Pharma has the cash to offset patent cliffs. They will continue to buy growth. Drug approvals have been coming in fast and furious since the focus has shifted from COVID in 2020 and 2021 back to normal innovation, Alzheimer's, cancer, etc. in 2022. A representative basket of biotech is now up 33% off of its May lows. Uh, Alibaba is now up 51% off of its October lows. Um, so you can see all the deals and all the drugs. Auto supplier update. This is the big one. Another of our top three positions is an auto supplier named Cooper Standard. We've made our case for the stock several months ago, originally on the claim and countdown on June 7th and executed across accounts at $5.50 on average. It's now up 23% as of yesterday's close. 
on November 15th, we got some better than expected news from Cooper Standard. When they announced their transaction support agreement, they laid out what the new capital structure would look like. You can read the press release here, full agreement here. This week on Monday evening, Cooper Standard issued a press release that the transaction support agreement was moving ahead as outlined with the, quote, fully backstopped private offering of new first lien notes and private exchange offer and consent solicitation for existing senior notes as part of refinancing transactions. That's about $20,000 a word for the attorney who wrote the headline. Uh, full Cooper Standard filing here. Here are some key points. First off, it's fully backstopped by J.P. Morgan and Mill Street uh, have basically said that uh, J.P. Morgan and Mill Street Investment Management Mill Street Capital Management represents 62.7% that have already agreed to subscribe. So they have the majority vote, which they need. They have the um, the money. So the, Mill Street is going to buy 62.7. But if the other 37.3 um, don't step up, they're going to buy the rest of it. So they've got the money and they've got the vote. All they need is the conclusion, which is January 18th at 11:59 p.m. Uh, we've gone through the capital structure changes. We've gone through the earnings power. We've gone through the business. You can look through this at hedgefundtips.com. For those of you who are new listeners, just go to hedgefundtips.com. Scroll down here to popular post. You'll see the three magic words: stock market and sentiment results. Click on that, or at any time you can just click on commentary and see every article we've ever written. You can click on video cast see every video cast we've ever uh, recorded or podcast and listen to every podcast we've ever recorded. You should also click on terms. This is opinion, not advice. Talk to your financial advisor. So um, now the big thing here and why we're in the stock is very simple. Um, the most important table is the one above with the IHS estimates of global light vehicle production. The key takeaway is that volumes are expected to return to 2017 levels by 2024, 2025. That's why we bought the company. We understand the cyclicality of the business, the peaks and troughs. We studied um, Charlie Munger when he bought Tenneco in the 2002 recession when they had $1.2 billion of debt and credit spreads were not at 5.9% like they are today for high yield OIS. They were at 11.99. He bought the stock at 160. He flipped it out at eight times. He turned 10 million into 80 million in a year. Uh, as an eight bagger, he gave that 80 million to Li Lu in China, who caught that, uh, that, uh, China run that we were talking about from 2002 to 2007, which we think we're on the verge of. And he turned the 80 million into a half a billion with two chess moves. And we think we're set up to do a similar type of situation in terms of a multi-bagger. Why do we believe that? Because we're hope and cheer? No, because we look at the math and we look at the probabilities. And the probabilities are if the IHS is right, and volumes return by 2024 or 2025, the earnings power of the business in 2027, when they had the auto the anti-vibration business, was $7.21. Taking out the anti-vibration business now, um, you look at, uh, but you have less shares. You've got, um, we believe the earnings power will be uh, $7.19 uh, per share uh, out to 2024, 2025. And historically, on a normalized basis, the trough multiple of this business has been 10 times. The peak multiple has been 20 times. So, you know, pick your 
pick your pill, I mean, you basically have at a 10 times multiple, a trough multiple, a $71 stock. At a peak multiple, you're back to $146 stock. This was $142 stock in 2017-2018 period. And uh, so just cut it all in half. Let's say it goes to 35. You get a crappy multiple, and we're 50% wrong about how great things are going to be. At 35 times, you're, uh, you still got yourself, at 35 bucks, you've got yourself a six-bagger. Uh, probably in the scheme of 36 months, um, you know, and, and that's the story. So people will believe it when they see it. The, the thing will close officially on January 18th. I think people will start to front run that after they get through uh, January 1st and uh, they'll want to put it put it on their books and uh, take advantage. And then as the price doubles and triples, more and more people will jump on. So, uh, you know, the, the uh, needums of the world will start to cover the stock and, you know, off to the races. Same Same story, opinion follows trend. Um, so, uh, bear, you know, sentiment down to 20%, you know, I don't need to say more about that. You want to be a, a buyer, not a seller, fear and greed at 38. And these guys got washed out to 39%. So that's all you need to know. Economic data. The most important thing coming down the pike tomorrow is the core PCE. Uh, so we'll see what happens. I mean, you know, expectations are low. Everything's just been, uh, you know, an S sandwich uh, for 2022, I think maybe we'll get some positive surprise like we got with the uh, CPI, headline CPI uh, last week. And that would be really nice going into year end and probably spark that Santa rally. No one's positioned for it. I love the fact that the market traded like hell today. What I wouldn't want to see is the market trading up 500 points on the Dow two days in a row into an important print like that. Then it was this, you know, buy the rumor, sell the news. This has been like, believe nothing. And, you know, everyone will get caught flat-footed if we get a, a below 4.7 print, even probably below 5% print. Uh, let's take a look at how this has been going. So you can see uh, Core PCE has been a little stubborn. So if you got a four handle in, in this four somewhere, uh, I think the market would be very pleased because the, the Fed watches that very closely. Month-on-month, uh, month, 0.2 last, uh, last month. They're expecting 0.2. If you remember for CPI, they were expecting, I think, 0.3. We got 0.1. This came 0.1. Hold on to your hat because uh, the market's going to be off even on light volume. Earnings, uh, trans Dow Transports, top 30 weights uh, were revised down just a half a percent in the last 60 days. Considering all the pessimism, that's pretty damn good. Uh, and then um, this is retail earnings. Everyone's so pessimistic. But they're only down 1.3% in the last 60 days. And if you think about last 60 days, you had October, the world was ending, yada, yada, yada. So these are pretty good. And you can see it reflected in this number, which has held up. It's basically been flat for the last couple of months here at 231. Everyone's been calling for 200. They're not getting it yet. Maybe they get it, but the market's priced in a lot. Um, all right. Finally, we got some Ask Me Anything questions. Uh, what, at what level do you anticipate that Warren Buffett will add more to Oxy, uh, to Berkshire Hathaway's portfolio? Number one, you don't know if it's Warren Buffett or his subordinates. Uh, number two, um, I would need it to go a, a ton lower to re, re, uh, uh, reload on energy and I might not get it. So, um, uh, hard pass on that. That was a buy in 2020 uh you know and a sell in early 2022 so i think there'll be a chance to reload on energy i'm not bearish secularly but i you know this thing it's run up it's like you know i don't chase things uh jack zhang 
I know you do a little bit of analysis on different companies toward the end of each Thursday. Was wondering if you'd look into Yala Group. Full disclosure, I have a position. By the way, I'd hate for you to be asking or talking about a stock you didn't have a position. You know, people say, oh, you're pitching your book. I would I would be offended if someone was talking about a stock that they didn't have skin in the game and they weren't risking their money and their net worth on and talking about something they didn't own. Like, and I guess that's most of the, you know, many people out there talk about stocks that they don't own. It's completely useless because it shows, number one, you have zero conviction. So why are you talking to other people about it? Put your money where your mouth is. That's what we've been since day one. Um, okay, so Yala Group. I don't even know the ticker. Let's see. I've never even heard of it. Yala, Y-A-L-L-A. Okay, so it's beaten down stock. Um, you know, let's see. All right, so it's down from 41 to $3.55. Let's take a look at what they are and what they do. Uh, Voice-centric social networking platform under the Yala name in the Middle East and North African region. Uh, chatting services, da, da 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 headquartered in Dubai. I've never done found any of the Middle East stocks to do well. I mean, maybe you got a chance with Aramco because they're, you know, doing their own knitting. But uh, uh, they just, I don't know, they just don't work. Uh, I look objectively at this, and this is an absolute no-brainer. I mean, revenues have gone from $42 million to $300 million. Net income's growing. EPS is growing. What's happening with cash flow? Cash flow is growing. Yeah, I mean, again, this is like those tiny little Chinese stocks where, you know, 30% of them are probably frauds, uh, so you just don't touch them. Um, here, it's such a small company, you're taking country risk, number one, uh, and company risk. And, and I don't take those two things. But objectively, I mean, this thing looks beautiful. I mean, I, return on capital is is generally expanding. I mean, it was higher the first couple of years, but... Um, you know, something like this, like, quote, unquote, too good to be true. I mean, maybe you just take a 1% position. So if it's a 10-bagger, you feel good that you were involved. But, um, you know, you really have I, – I, I, like, I, like, I like how you're thinking, Jack. I just – I wouldn't take that risk. There's too many other things to do that are that have more certainty in my view. But I would take a flyer on I, – I won't, but I would. If I were you and I liked it, I would probably take a flyer, maybe 1% of the portfolio or half a percent or something like that. Alan Woolman did a scan on stock charts for stocks in an uptrend that were consolidating. I was surprised by the number of hits uh, for stocks in India. Just wondering if you've looked at this market for individual stocks. I have. I don't buy stocks that are in an uptrend consolidating after they're up, you know, 100 200%. India's already had a big run. Uh, we covered their demographics. That's more of a late decade when we're peeling out of China. We'll be peeling into India. Uh, but they'll go up because emerging markets are going to do well. Um, you know, I mean, this is, you know, 200, let's see, 150% since uh, the pandemic lows. Uh, let it breathe. Let it at least check back like the rest of the world back to 15. Then I'll start to look at Indian stock. Uh, um, a friend of mine did give, send me one bank that we're looking at in India, but it's a lower quality, uh, and we have to do more work on it. And that's kind of interesting, but it hasn't risen with the rest of the Indian market. And, um, we, we just have to 
take a look at the risk reward more carefully and there's uh, some supply coming on the market so we're not in a rush. But that type of thing in the context of India I would be interested in. But uh, I want the things that haven't run yet, not the things that have. And what hasn't run, which is the biggest weight, is China. I know everyone's scared about China, so they're looking at Dubai and they're looking at India and they're looking at Brazil and none of them are going to be as good. That's my view and I'm sticking to it. You missed India, move on. Uh, India, you know, if India, like like Occidental, if India came back down here, I'd, I'd take a look. Or I'd look at these special situation type things, like why do we have big positions in America, even though we think that small caps and emerging markets will outperform? It's because they're special situations. So Steve Frampton, hi, it's the Canadian again. I love the Canadians because they whoop our ass, our butts in hockey all the time. I'm just jealous, you know that. Thanks for the work every week. I came across a fintech lending company. Uh, not the environment for that, by the way. Uh, small, disruptive, reasonably valued uh, owner operators. Okay, profitable, growing margins, growing revenues very quickly. Things are growing fast. Profits aren't enough. Uh, thing is, they're growing so fast. Their profits aren't enough to cover enough to cover growth costs. So they need to take on debt, sell equities to stakes to fund it. Wondering your initial thoughts on such a situation. No, there's too many good things to do. I, I want to pull this up because I'm sure, like Yala. It probably looks great and you're probably spot on with your analysis but why would you fintech oh tsx propel holdings okay these are very simple if you listen to the larry menti thing he asked me about tesla i said look the guy's a visionary but it goes in my too hard box i've never owned it never shorted it it's a little too rich for me it doesn't mean it won't go up but it's not for me it's, it's in the too hard box. I go for the easy things, like, you know, the one-foot putts that you can make a multi-bagger. I, I don't need to uh, do a stinger 250 yards at a 90-degree uh, turn, you know, draw to get on the green. Like, I'm not interested in that. I, you know, I just want to get it down the middle, put it on in two, and putt for birdie. Uh, and that, that's, that's the game. So, uh, operates as, uh, okay, so let's look at the financials. Growing like crazy. This looks exactly like Yala. I mean, I think your analysis is great here. It's a quality business that's growing. Let's see what's happening with uh, cash flow. Cash flow operations is crap. So that that's what you you were talking about. Uh, so they're financing everything. Uh, you know, return on capital is declining. It could work. I mean, that, that's the thing. All of these can work, but go for the no-brainers. Um, again, throw 1% or 2% if you like it. You Maybe you get a 5 or 10 bagger. It's a tiny micro cap, or you get a zero. But, you know, and, and you live another day. They don't take you out on a stretcher. Uh, it's, it's okay. But raising a lot of money in this environment with a non-proven business is not an easy thing. You know, the, the thing I love about cyclical business is they have decades of operating history. So when people go to land, they have assets, they have this and that, and we play the mean reversion. So um, it's good. Thanks for sending it. Uh, not for me, but, you know, I'd do a flyer or something like that. I'd never put it in a client account, but um, I, I just like the obvious things. Uh, JT Investor. Tom, considering the market reaction has been muted, to the announced refinancing transaction for the auto supplier, what is your read on this lack of reaction to the stock price? It's not done. When it's officially done, I think we'll get a move. Uh, do you think the refinancing transaction was baked in the current value? Hell no. One, institutions won't put it on their books in a down year. So January, you probably get some buyers. 
Two, it needs to get done. No one's certain of everything. You know what the pessimism is like in the market, even though they've got backstopped, even though they've got the votes. Until it's done, it's done, okay? Um, uh, and three, once this is done officially, it's done unofficially, once this is done officially January 18th, they've taken bankruptcy off the table for four years. If they can't hockey stick the business and the industry, and, and, and it's not they, if industry volumes just revert, and by the way, they shouldn't revert to 2007 levels, 17 levels. They should revert well beyond because you got two years of pent up demand. You got the average age of a car at 13.1 years. I think you're going to do much more than 2017. And these guys are going to rock and roll and the margins are going to get, be better because of their index based contracts that they negotiated during the downturn. And they make a higher margin on EVs, which all these OEMs are pushing. I think it's just going to be a monster. So I don't really care. Like if this thing closed on January 18th and the stock went down to five, I'd buy more. I mean, th this is, this is an, in, in our view, a no brainer. Uh, you know, unless you think we're going into global de depression and we're going to have two once in a hundred year events in 15 years, which is possible, not probable, but possible, then you shouldn't own anything. You should own, you know, uh, guns and ammo and uh, fallout shelter and canned foods. But if you're not in that camp, then something like this makes a hell of a lot of sense with all the operating leverage. Um, and that's the story. Uh, so, uh, Rich C. asked about refinancing. Uh, we, only the people who own the current 2016 debt have the prospectus. So I don't know about the make, any make whole provisions or penalties for refinancing. But even if they can't refinance till 2017, it's completely immaterial relative to 450 or 500 million dollars of EBITDA that they can generate on a normalized basis. So it's a non-issue. I think they will be able to refinance, but I don't have that prospectus uh, and it's not published anywhere. I called out to the company today to get a copy and they're probably on holiday or whatever they are. Maybe I'll get it tomorrow. But um, uh, so that's where it is. So look, I want to wish. Oh, and let's just see. Ah, Santa versus the Grinch. We're betting that Santa's going to wipe him off the map. And then finally, Merry Christmas to everyone who celebrates and Happy New Year to absolutely everyone. Wishing you the best of everything. Health, happiness, and massive prosperity in 2023. With that said, we're going to see you. Actually, we'll see you next week. Same time, same place. In the meantime, make it a great one. Bye for now.